This evening, we're still talking about the new covenant, and we're still in Jeremiah 31. And uh, we're going to conclude with Jeremiah 31. And uh, we have a few more things uh, to talk about in relation to the new uh, covenant. So just a reminder that we will have class next week. But the following week, which is Thanksgiving, we're not having class, okay? So no class on Thanksgiving Day. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin. Lord, we give you thanks for allowing us to be together tonight. And as we study your word, we ask for understanding uh, that we would uh, know what your word says and what it means. And Father, we also ask for understanding to see how that is significant to us today. Help us to be able to put your word together accurately. We ask you to bless our time uh, this evening in Christ's name. Amen. So as we um, <clears throat> think about Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31 through thir verse 35, let me just uh, let me read uh, verse 31 through 37, okay? Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 37. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Verse 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who distributes the, uh, disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, is his name. If those ordinance depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Um, notice in the last verse there, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. Uh, just consider the fact of how much we don't know about space. I mean, even space around us, relatively close to us. And also think about how much we don't know about what's in the ocean. There's even today, we don't know everything that's on dry land. They're still discovering species 
that they didn't know existed uh, before. And uh, so that the end of that passage there, uh, the Lord is using this argument about something that couldn't happen. These things couldn't happen. Therefore, he will never uh, cast away his people. He will never um, cause them to cease from being a nation. So we read here in, uh, back in verse 31, behold, the days are coming. And of course, that gives us a future orientation uh, to things. And the fact that the Lord is the one who says this gives us the source of uh, these words and this statement here in Jeremiah 31. Uh, we think that says the Lord is a common phrase, but uh, and it is pretty common, but it's very important to the book of Jeremiah. It's used more in the book of Jeremiah than any other uh, book of the Bible. And so this is a, a really important phrase to pay attention to uh, here. Um, it says, the, when, I make, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the Lord is going to be the one who makes the covenant. And he's going to make it with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, speaking of the northern and southern kingdoms. And he does that <clears throat> to emphasize the fact that uh, no Jew, no matter what tribe they belong to, is going to be excluded from uh, this new covenant that he makes. And as you get to verse 32, we see that the new covenant that's going to be made is not going to be like the covenant that God made with their fathers, their ancestors, particularly the ancestors that were uh, a part of the exodus from Egypt. It's going to be a difference. So that's the Mosaic covenant that God made with them. And so this new covenant is going to be different than the Mosaic covenant. Uh, the Mosaic covenant is very much about compliance uh, to external things. Not that that's all that God wanted, but that was what is required while the new covenant is going to be an internal arrangement. It's going to be an internal transformation. It goes on to say the covenant that they broke, clarifying um, that uh, the children of Israel were not able to keep the Mosaic covenant. They didn't keep the Mosaic covenant. Uh, even though the Lord was a husband to them, that he cared for them and uh, provided for them. And then he says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So now he's going to give a positive description. He just gave a negative reference. Now he's going to give a positive description. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is an internal uh, transformation that's going to happen within uh, the Jews in that day. And so that brings us up through verse 33. And so now we're getting into verse 34. Uh, and verse 34 says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So you notice in the first phrase of verse 34, it says, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. Now, under the administration of the Mosaic Covenant, what was one of the things that went along with that? What did the Levites do? What did the priesthood do when they weren't on duty? Teach the, teach the law. Hey, that's their job is to teach the law. So when they weren't on duty and they were in their homes, their home city, wherever that was at, they would be teaching the law to the people of Israel. And, of course, they're pushing the people of Israel. They're urging them. They're exhorting them to know the Lord. So this new covenant that the Lord is going to make, make with the, uh, the Jews is not going to have this need or this requirement that it be taught. Okay? So think about it. This, is going to, this new covenant is going to be something that people do not have to be taught. They don't have to be taught. Why? Because God has written it in their hearts and put it in their mind. So there's no teaching of this covenant that's required when it comes about. And so nobody is going to have to go around and say, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. So there's no longer this teaching ministry that is needed because they will all know the Lord. Now, what do you think that means? They will all know the Lord. Do you think that means they will all know about the Lord? Or they will all know the Lord in a believing sense? I think it's talking about they're all going to know the Lord in a believing sense. So if we would go up to somebody, try to have a spiritual conversation with them, probably wouldn't work as well these days, but and uh, years gone by, it would, it would certainly have resonated with people if you ask them, well, do you know the Lord? What are you asking somebody if you say, do you know the Lord? You're asking them, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you exercised faith? And I think that's what's being talked about here. So I take this, uh, uh, this uh, expression here as communicating the fact that at the point in history in which the new covenant is fulfilled, all the Jews will have exercised faith in the Lord. Now, that might seem a little strange. Because are we saying that the entire nation of Israel is going to be believers? Yeah. That's what we're saying. That's what it says here. That's what it's saying. Now, can you think of another passage 
that would also indicate something like that. Romans chapter 11, verse 26. 26. Okay, Romans eleven twenty-six. 26. So let's turn to Romans chapter 11. And I guess we could just talk about that verse, but I didn't do that. We're going to talk about the whole chapter so we, so we can build up to the verse. Okay, Romans chapter 11 comes after chapter 10, right before chapter 12. Let me get my other Bible here. Just to make sure. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's uh, go to verse 1, actually verses 1 through 6. In verses 1 through 6, we see that God has not rejected the nation of Israel and that he has preserved a faithful remnant within Israel. So verse 1 says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleaded with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. work. So notice in verse 1, we have the question. Here's the question. Has God cast away? That's the word rejected. Okay. Has God rejected his people? What's the answer in the text? God forbid. Uh, absolutely, positively not. So this is one of the strongest ways you can say no in the Greek language. Okay. Absolutely not. And to prove this, in the second part of verse 1, Paul uses himself as an illustration. He says, I am also an Israelite. By using the word also here, Paul is indicating that the reference to the phrase his people at the beginning of the verse is referring to the nation of Israel. So he says, his people, and I'm also part of his people, Israelite. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say he's an Israelite. He says he's of the seed of David of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul gives a national reference, Israelite. He gives a family reference, seed of Abraham. And he gives a tribal reference of Benjamin here, the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is saying here, 
I'm an illustration, I'm an example that God has not rejected the Jews. He's not thrown the Jews away because I am a Jew. And so as you come to verse 2, Paul gives a positive answer to his question. So the first answer to the question is a negative answer. No. Has God rejected his people? No, it's negative. Now he gives a positive take on that. And he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Okay, God has not rejected Israel. When he mentions this phrase, whom he foreknew, Paul is moving from the present, his present time, to the past. Okay, so he's going from the present, talking to the Romans, and now he's going to the past. Uh, the term to foreknow or foreknew here means to just simply mean something ahead of time. Means something from before. This moves God's relationship from Paul's present time to his past relationship, the whole entirety of his past relationship with Israel. And so when Paul says, God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew, it goes all the way back to the beginning of their history, God and Israel's history. And so Paul goes from present and he goes to the past. And he's going to reverse that coming up. He's going to come back to the present. But he first starts by uh, reversing it to take, take his listeners, take his readers into the past. And so he uses the illustration of Elijah to prove his point. Okay, so that's where he goes to the past. That's, that's his landing spot in the past. And so in verses 2, the end of verse 2 through verse 4, Paul illustrates the fact that God has never rejected his people with the illustration of Elijah. Okay, now we have studied Elijah here in this class. And we know that the time of Elijah, the time of Ahab, was one of the most wicked times in the history of the northern kingdom. That nation was totally devoted to idolatry. Totally devoted to idolatry. And so the context of Paul's quotation here of 1 Kings 19, 18. That's where he's quoting from. The context of that verse is a great victory has just been won on Mount Carmel. And now um, Elijah flees to the most southern part of Judah. Not Israel. He flees out of Israel down to the most southern part of Judah to get away from Jezebel. Okay, so he just has this great victory and Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. And Elijah takes off and gets as far away from her as he can. And while he is there in the wilderness, he has a pity party for himself. And he thinks and he claims he's alone. He thinks and he claims that he is the only one who has remained faithful 
to the Lord. And what is God's response? It says in our text, um, verse 4, what's the divine response? God says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So God tells Elijah that he has reserved 7,000 prophets who have not bowed down to Baal. And so God has preserved a remnant in the time of Elijah. That's the key. The preservation of a remnant in the time of Elijah. Now Paul in verse 5 moves from the illustration of the past remnant and brings it back to the future or, or back to the present, excuse me, back uh, to the present time. He says, even so then at this present time, there's a remnant. So he just got done saying God preserved a remnant in the past and now there's a remnant in the present time, and it's talking about a remnant of faithful Jews, and it says here, a remnant according to the election of grace. So God has preserved a remnant. He has preserved a remnant even in the day of Paul, and this remnant is according to the election of grace. And so when we get to verse 6, Paul explains what this election of grace is. It says, and if by, by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And so, Paul is giving a contrast. He's explaining what the election of grace is. It's not by works. Okay? It means it's not by works. The contrast is between works and grace. You know, this, the term work here is an important word uh, to understand Romans, to, to understand this letter that Paul is writing because he uses it 18 times. More in the book of Romans than any other of his writings, significantly more. And uh, to summarize what he means there is that one's works can accuse a person and convict a person, but works never save a person. Okay, So your works can be used to um, accuse you. You can, you can even think about your works and accuse yourself. Your works can be used to convict you, as in the penalty is just because of your works. You're convicted based upon uh, your works. But they cannot save. They cannot save. And so works is an important idea here in the letter to the Romans. And uh, it never comes over as a positive thing in the sense of one salvation. And, of course, the other word here to pay attention to is grace. Grace. Um, so grace is the contrast, right? It's the contrast to works. The blessings of God 
come by grace and not by works. God's blessings are gifts, not wages. And how is grace obtained? How is grace, God's grace, obtained? Let's put a verse with it. Go back to chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. Well, let me just start in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? That's through Jesus Christ. Also, we have access. How? By faith into what? Into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope and glory of God. So how do you receive, how do you obtain God's grace? By faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. So we have access to God's grace by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how that works. Uh, I shouldn't have said works. That's how that operates. <laughs> works, works isn't grace. Okay? Works isn't grace. Works don't give you access to God's blessings. Grace does. And you have grace by faith in Jesus Christ. There's a third word that's important here that we should understand, and that's the word election. Uh, election is, God's, is the basis for God's relationship with Israel. Go back to chapter 9. Let me just pick it up in verse 6. I'm going to read several verses here, but let me pick it up in verse 6 so we got some context. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That even fits with this idea of remnant that we're talking about right now. Verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but... And Isaac, your seed, shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise, referring to the promise about Isaac, are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, no works, that the purpose of God according to what? Election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob, I have loved, he saw it, but hated. So God's relationship with Israel is based on election. His election 
of them, his selection of them, his choosing of them. And so that is the, that is the basis. God chose Abraham. He could have chose anybody, but he chose Abraham. But this choosing act of God, this choosing act of God was not, at least in our context here, it's, it's not for salvation. It's not connected to salvation. It's connected to the nation of Israel. Uh, so when the existence of the remnant that Paul is talking about is connected to the election of grace, it is pointed back to God's choosing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's faithfulness to them extends to preserving the nation of Israel through a remnant, even in a very wicked time, even in a time where most Jews are not uh, trusting in God. Okay, so, so Paul here is emphasizing, he is drawing their minds to the fact that God has not rejected the nation of Israel, but rather he has preserved a faithful remnant within the nation of Israel, a believing remnant. And so now he shifts gears a little bit in Romans eleven seven, and he starts to talk about the hardening, the hardening of the nation of Israel. So this is sort of answering a question, well, why does he need to have a remnant? Why is he preserving a remnant? Okay, why is that? So look at verse 7. It says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back uh, always. So here is the question that Paul asks at the beginning of verse 7. Here's his question. What is the conclusion or inference from the fact that God has uh, not rejected Israel and that he has preserved a remnant? What can, we, what can we conclude from that? We conclude from that that the nation of Israel was seeking something. They were seeking something, but they did not obtain it. The nation as a whole did not obtain what they were seeking, but the elect have obtained it. Everyone else in the nation is hardened. That word blinded at the end of verse 7, at least in the New King James, it says blinded. That's the word hardened. Okay? Hardened. They were hardened. The rest were hardened. So the thing that Israel was seeking, the thing they wanted to obtain, was the blessing of God. But they could not obtain it. 
Because they were trying to gain it through what? Works. works of the law. They were trying to get it through works of the law, but the works of the law were never designed for that. All right? So they're seeking the blessing of God, but um, they're, they're seeking it through um, righteousness and the works of the law. So in verse 8, Paul then explains what he means by verse 7. Okay, just as it's written. So now he's going to go back to the Old Testament. He's explaining. He's going back to the Old Testament. And he's going to, he's going to straighten everybody out about what it means that they were hardened. Okay, now before we look at some of that Old Testament stuff, we probably need to go back to verse 7 and talk about the word elect here. So this word, elect, is the same as the word in verse 5. Okay, it's the same word. Okay, um, it's used seven times in the New Testament. Seven times in the New Testament. Three of those times are in this chapter, chapter 11. Uh, so this word translated as elect uh, here in verse 7. In every case, so in every case that this word appears, it's speaking of the act of choosing. It's not a verb, but it's used to talk about the action. It's not the action itself. It's just used to talk about the action of choosing or selecting. So it should be translated either election Selection or choice. It should not be translated the way it's translated in just about every English Bible as the elect. Because when it's translated as the elect, all of a sudden you think it's talking about people, right? It's not talking about uh, people per se. It's talking about this act of election that has taken place but those who were elected something you know is talking about this act of election so think of it this way the word election is uh, a little bit of an abstract word focusing on the act the word the elect is a concrete you get there's people concrete idea. And by Paul using this word election, he's actually drawing attention and emphasis to God's act in this and not the status of the people per se, but that God is the one who has chosen this, uh, this people or this way that these people receive blessing. So, and just to remind ourselves, to enter the remnant, because this is in reference to these people of the remnant God has chosen uh, for there to be a remnant, to preserve the nation by a remnant. To enter the remnant, one must access God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so how do you get in the remnant? God did not just zap people and they were a part of the remnant. 
To be a part of the remnant, you have to trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what gets you uh, into the remnant. And so now let's go to the Old Testament passages. Paul quotes, Paul quotes here from Isaiah and Deuteronomy. So he quotes from Isaiah 29.10. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. Let me see if I can find that here. 29.10. And uh, let me just start in verse 9. It says, Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. Why? For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely uh, the seers. Now, the context of these Old Testament passages are going to indicate to us how uh, Paul is using them in Romans. But we read, we read these verses in Isaiah 29 10 and the verses um, in Deuteronomy. And uh, we kind of wonder what is going on here. It says in uh, verse 8, so I'm going, you got to keep both hands active here. So I'm going from Romans back to Isaiah and Isaiah. You need to be able to have both of them open at the same time. So and in um, Isaiah, or excuse me, in Romans eleven eight, it says, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear uh, to this very day. And so the first part of that's coming from Isaiah 29, 10. And the second part of it comes from Deuteronomy 29, 4. And the context of both of these passages is God does this thing, he does these things, blinding them, however you want to say that, giving them eyes that they cannot see. He's doing that because the Jews have been disobedient. Okay. He doesn't do this to make them disobedient. He does this because they have been disobedient. They have already turned their back on God, and so God sends them... Uh, blindness or hardness and this. So the, 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 the people that are being spoken of here have already been disobedient and rejected the Lord. Now, turn back to Psalm 69, verse 22. Psalm 69, verse 22. So verses 22 and 23, Psalm 69, verse 22 and 23. 
says, Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Now, so this is, this is a uh, prayer or a psalm of David against his enemies. And what do we call those? Imprecatory psalm. Okay? So this is an imprecatory passage where he's basically praying down curses uh, on these people. And so we have in Romans uh, 9 and 10, or excuse me, Romans 11 verses 9 and 10, we have this imprecatory passage. And the point that Paul is making is that even though a great majority of Israel have turned from the Lord and as a result are hardened, and there's still this idea of as long as they are hardened, as long as they're disobedient to the Lord, they should continue to have this hardening effect on them. They're hardened, but there still is a faithful remnant because God is faithful to his election and choosing of Israel. So there's this hardening of Israel due to their not listening to God, due to their disobedience. And uh, David prayed an imprecatory psalm against his enemies, and Paul picks that up and uses it in reference to unbelieving Jews, that they would still be in this state of hardening. And so when we, when we consider... Verses 7 through 10, we see that it's all about the hardening of the nation of Israel. That the nation as a whole, in general, has been hardened at this time. At, um, this time, Paul, Romans 11 time. Okay? They've been hardened. And sooner or later, we're going to get to the new covenant, so hang on. So they've been hardened at this time. But God has preserved for himself a remnant because of his election, his choosing of Abraham. And it wasn't that Abraham did anything. It wasn't that Isaac did anything. It wasn't that Jacob did anything. It was just God's gift to them to choose them. Okay, now we come to Romans 11, verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. So hopefully everybody's tracking along here. Now we have the question of self-caused self rejection of Israel. And the results of the nation of Israel's sins for the Gentiles. How, what are the results that go to the Gentiles because of Israel's sins? So it says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, that's the word trespass, through their trespass to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So in verse 11, the beginning of verse 11, Paul actually goes back to kind of pick up on his original question. Now, what's the original question? Chapter 11. Has God rejected his people? So verses 1 through 10, all are dealing with, has God rejected his people? Are, is the nation of Israel no longer part of God's plan? Do they no longer have the status of the people of God, of his people? Okay, And of course the answer to that question is no. God has not rejected them. Okay? God has not rejected them. How do we know this? Because he's preserved a remnant within the nation, a believing remnant, and he has hardened everybody else. Okay? And we're going to find out later that that hardening isn't the end of things for them. Just because you're hardened, it doesn't mean it's the end of everything for you. Okay? So we'll see that in a little bit. But he's saying God has not rejected him. Now here in verse 11 and following, he twists the same idea, but he is talking about have the Jews in some way caused themselves to be rejected? Have they disqualified themselves from being the people of God? And of course, Paul gives the same answer. And the answer is, no way. Absolutely not. Uh, God forbid. May it not be. Certainly not. They have not caused themselves to be rejected. Okay, so that, that is letting us know God hasn't cast them away. He hasn't rejected them. All the wickedness they have done hasn't disqualified them from being the people of God. And the reason for that is because they didn't do anything to get it, right? Why are they the people of God? Why are they his people? God chose them. And God chose them not based upon his, on their works, but upon his grace. They didn't do anything to become the people of God. Okay, so they can't do anything to get out of that. It has to be all with God, and God has not rejected them. So he gives the same answer. Now look at the end, towards the end of verse 11. It says, but through their trespass, okay, through their trespass, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Let me, let me re-read that um, a little bit closer to the way it actually appears in the Greek New Testament. But by their trespass, Salvation to the Gentiles for the purpose to make them, the Jews, jealous. Okay? So, because of the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, when, it, when Paul says that, he's not talking about God's eternal plan for salvation um, 
with the idea that God did not plan or, or God only planned to save the Jews, but when the Jews sinned, then God moved on to the Gentiles. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that salvation all of a sudden became open to the Gentiles when the Jews sinned. He's not saying, uh, saying that because we know from the Old Testament that God had every intention of offering salvation to the Gentiles. Okay, every intention. By the way, who were saved first, Gentiles or Jews? Gentiles. When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, was he a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Gentile. Okay, Jews didn't exist yet. They didn't ex exist at that point. Okay, so this is not talking about well, all of a sudden God's opening up salvation uh, to the Gentiles. What Paul is saying here, what he's talking about, is he's talking about the temporal outworking of God's plan to save. So uh, maybe two illustrations from particular times in history. In Matthew 12, when the leaders of the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, okay, when they rejected Jesus as Messiah, now there's something different's going to happen. In fact, it's somewhere right in there where Jesus then goes and tells his disciples to make disciples of many people, right? Up to that point in time, Jesus' ministry was only to the Jews. John the Baptist preached only to the Jews. Jesus really preached only to the Jews, told his disciples, only go out to the Jews. But then you get to the latter part of the book after he's been rejected by the leaders of Israel. And then he says, make disciples of uh, many people. So that's one example. Okay, a shift takes place. Another example comes from Acts 13, where Paul is in Antioch of Pisidia. And um, you, you remember the account there. They're in the synagogue and he preaches to them. There's Jews and Gentiles in the synagogue. And when the service is over, everybody's getting ready to go out to Cracker Barrel. And uh, the Gentiles come up and plead with Paul and Barnabas, come back next week and, and preach the same message again. Come back. And so they come back. Paul and Barnabas come back to the synagogue next Saturday. Okay, so a little bit easier on Saturday to get in Cracker Barrel than Sundays. Okay, but uh, uh, they come back, and uh, when the Jews see the crowd of Gentiles that showed up, they get jealous. They get jealous. And Paul and Barnabas end up saying, it is our responsibility to preach to the Jew first, but now we're going to the Gentiles. There's a shift, big shift. Okay, so that's what's happening here. That's, that's what is being talked about when it says, by their trespass, singular, salvation to the Gentiles for the purpose to make the Jews jealous. So the Jews, when they see the Gentiles receiving the blessings of the Lord and all that he does, and they're not, is to provoke them uh, to jealousy. 
And so the message of salvation predominantly is going to Gentiles. And the predominant people who are believing are Gentiles. This doesn't mean that the Jews are excluded from salvation. Doesn't mean they're excluded, but rather they are not the primary focus at this time. They're not the primary focus at this time, even in Paul's day. Verse 12. Now, if their fall is the riches for the world, that is, if the, if the Jews fall is the riches of the world to the benefit for the world, and the Jews' failure, the riches for the Gentiles, how much more there the Jews' fullness. So here's an argument from lesser to greater, or we might say from good to better. Good to better. So Paul is saying here in connection to um, the sin of Israel and the benefit that the Gentiles receive, is he saying if the, if the Gentiles benefit from the fall and failure of Israel. How much more will the Gentiles benefit when Israel comes into their fullness? Their benefit's going to be uh, even greater. They're going to receive many more blessings when the fullness of Israel comes in. And so this, this uh, hardening that Israel has experienced is experience isn't removing them as the people of God, but it is resulting in God now going primarily to Gentiles with the gospel. And uh, as we move along in the text, we come to verses 13 through 24 now, following Paul's argument. He here in these verses speaks or writes of the Gentiles' relationship to the fall and the hardening of the nation of Israel. Okay? The Gentiles' relationship to the Jews. We just put it that way. He's just said that they receive a benefit from the failure, the sin of Israel. And now he's going to talk about how do you relate to these people? How, how are these two groups of people supposed to get along? Verse 13. For I speak to you, Gentiles. So who's Paul talking to here? Gentiles. So he's specifically speaking to the Gentiles in the church of Romans, of Rome. That means up to this point, he wasn't ex uh, speaking exclusively to the Gentiles. But now he marks them out and says, I have a special word for you, Gentiles. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So specifically addressing the Gentile believers in the church of Rome. Verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul says he is willing, he is willing to provoke the Jews to jealousy in order to save them. Okay. If his ministry to the Gentiles provokes Jews, 
If they get saved, that's a good thing. So he's willing to provoke them. He's willing to make them mad if it leads to the salvation of some of them. Verse 15. For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. So this is a little cast away here is different than the cast away in verses 1 and 2. It's a different word. And uh, Paul's making a contrast between the Jews' loss and their acceptance. And he's sort of going back to do what he did in verse 12 with the argument of lesser uh, to greater here. He says, if they're being cast away, is the reconciliation of the world. The world is being reconciled to God because the Jews have been cast away. If that's the case, then what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead, even greater. Beyond reconciliation, they have new life. They're not just reconciled. The sin's not just dealt with. They have new life. And so, again, Paul is getting into the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles here. Verses 16 through 18, Paul then uses the illustration of natural branches and the root. Okay? Verse 16. For if... You should also notice all the if word here, all the ifs that are used here. If this, if that. Okay. For if the first fruit is holy. Okay, that's the first ones. The lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles... Being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, the natural branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So the results of Israel's loss here, oh, I'm down next. The principle here is of the natural branches and the root. It says if the first fruit's holy, if the lump is holy, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he's he's pointing to the fact that you just can't say Israel is a bunch of wicked pagans here. There's a connection that they have. And he says to the Gentiles, don't boast over the Jews. You know, when you come to church, don't say to the Jews, you're a bunch of idiots. You had all this information. And you had all this revelation from God. How come more of you all didn't believe? Don't do that. Because, don't do that because you Gentiles... You Gentiles are add-ons. You're just added in. You're added in. You benefit from what God established with them. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. Now, as we come to verses 19 through 24, Paul says, you Gentiles should fear. So in verses 16 through 18, he says, you shouldn't boast, don't boast. But in verses 19 and 24, you should fear... And not boast because God is impartial. 
God is impartial. And Paul's argument is going to be here, here is going to be, if God cut out the Jews or some of the Jews because of unbelief, he will also cut you out because of unbelief. Okay, look, see what it says. Verse 19, I'll just read 19 through 24. We're out of time, wow. So will, uh, you will say then, branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. So why were the Jews hardened? Why are they set aside? Unbelief. Why are the Gentiles grafted in? They believed. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, that's the unbelieving Jews, severity. But to you Gentiles, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, because they believed. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. Verse 23. And they also, catch this, and they also, those Jews also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. So he's saying there, to put it differently, if they believe, they will be grafted back in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree. How much more will these Jews, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, the Jews got more of an advantage than you do, Gentile. More of an advantage than you do, but you're in. And so then we come to, now we're getting to the new covenant here. So verses 25 through 27. The time when Israel's hardening will be over and their fall will be over. Verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Now, here, here's what it is. That blindness in part, get that? Blindness in part, that's hardness in part. It's a hardening. Hardness in part has happened to Israel. For how long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So the hardening of Israel has only been a partial hard, hardening. In other words, it's not a permanent hardening. There will be a time when this hardening is taken away, and that's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the full amount of Gentiles to be saved is met. Whatever that number may be, we don't know. But whenever it's met, then there's going to be this shift again. And it's going to go back to focus on the Gentiles. And that doesn't mean 
After that point, no Gentile can be saved. It just means that God's focus is once again going to be totally directed towards uh, the Jews. And after the fullness of the Gentiles, once their hardness, this time of hardening is over, all Israel will be saved. They're going to believe. They're going to believe. Okay, they'll be part of the remnant. And this is because of the new covenant. So Paul quotes from Isaiah 59.20 and Isaiah 27.9. And he quotes these from the Septuagint. If you, if you go back and you read these passages in your Bible, they will not line up with what Paul says here. But he's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they line up perfectly. Word for word. Okay? So... Both of the passages that Paul quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27, have elements in them related to the new covenant. Furthermore, Isaiah 27, chapter 27, locates the time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and the hardness of Israel is removed. It locates it at the time that talks about the restoration of Israel, which is the millennial kingdom. That's when it locates the time. And um, so let me summarize the end of it and we'll be done. So the end of chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. Um, basically, it, Paul says God doesn't go back on his word and he's merciful to all. He says concerning the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. Okay, they're enemies of the gospel for your sake. It's to your advantage. When they became enemies of the gospel, it worked out for your advantage. But concerning the election, remember what we already talked about this word. It's talking about God's choosing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not talking about choosing who will be saved and that sort of thing. But concerning the election, they are beloved. For the sake of the fathers, because of God's promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So what God has given to Israel and his call upon them is irrevocable. He cannot go back on it. And then Paul goes on to say, look, everybody is under disobedience. Because God is going to have mercy on all. Everybody being under disobedient means God can show mercy to everyone. And then he says, who can know the mind of God? We can't understand why God would do this this way with the Jews, but he has. He, he has done that. So this all connects. This all connects to the very last part of verse 34 in, in Jeremiah 31, 34. It says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And this fits perfectly with Romans chapter 11, verse 27. For this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. There's no other covenant that God has made with Israel that talks about him taking away their sins other than the new covenant. And so Romans chapter 11 is actually a new covenant passage. And it actually gives us a good bit of information about 
how do the Gentiles relate to the new covenant? It also tells a lot about how the church relates to the new covenant. Okay? And we're not going to get into that tonight, though. All right. If you don't have questions, you should have questions about this. Next week, let me just tell you, next week we're going to get into um, making a few observations about what we've just read in Jeremiah 31. And we're going to talk about the different aspects of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. And um, we'll talk about, I'll mention some of the other passages that uh, we find the new covenant in that are connected to Jeremiah uh, 31. Okay, and that'll take up the rest of our time. When, we, when I get back, um, so this will be three weeks from tonight, we're going to tackle the issue of how does the church relate to the new covenant. Okay, that'll be three weeks from now. And that'll be the end of the new covenant. I mean, well, it's the end for us in the study of the new covenant. We'll kind of wrap that up, the covenants up together, and then we'll take a break. Okay, so that's, uh, that's basically we'll be off for the month of December. Okay, something like that. Anyway, so that's what the perspective is. So let me pray and we'll be dismissed. And if anybody has questions, I'll be happy to blunder my way through trying to answer those. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we had together. And um, Lord, uh, we can see how you don't leave us in ignorance, but <clears throat> how you repeat yourself over and over again and how you explain yourself um, really giving answers to questions that we don't start out with, but maybe we have a little bit later on. And, uh, but you've already answered them for us. And uh, so we thank you for that. We're thankful for your word. And we're thankful for all the blessings that you have given to Israel because of the new covenant and the fact that we as Gentiles can receive blessing because of what you've done for them. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.